you can get the announcements in the back if you want them. But, um, so we're going to continue in part two this morning of our series, Sexuality, Culture, in the Bible, with a message entitled, Mirror, Mirror on the Wall. So you might be able to guess where we're going with this. The temptation, as we said at the outset last week in regards to conversations about sexuality, oftentimes is to attack. We want to go after hot-button issues and make it all about somebody else. Uh, But there is a place when we engage conversations about sin, especially when it has to do with the sins that take place in culture, uh, that it's always good to start with ourselves before we engage in a dialogue about any other uh, shortcoming that anyone else has, that we should take some time and think about our own because it changes our approach as we go into the places where God has called us. So this is a message called Mirror, Mirror on the Wall. We're going to be touching on themes from Genesis 3. We're going to be looking at our main passage in Matthew chapter 7 about judging other people and then tell a story from John 8. This will be a content-rich morning, uh, but I'm hoping also that it will be the most encouraging conversation that you've ever engaged in, questions we've asked ourselves concerning sin, uh, because we can do a good job of beating ourselves up about sin and beating others up about sin. Uh, and Jesus beat up sin so we wouldn't beat ourselves up about it. Amen? Amen. Okay. A couple disclaimers that we'll share throughout the series. Uh, One is that this series will be woefully inadequate if it is our intent to find fast answers to complex questions about sexuality. Sometimes that's the temptation too. Just give me the answer so I can get past this because it's a complicated issue in our society. So just how do I fix this fast? Uh, The good news, maybe the bad news is we don't fix it fast. We sit with it. We sit in it. Uh, We give God space uh, to speak to us about matters related to sexuality. And the series has been designed as a a set of discussions, a a set of ponderings intended to help lead us towards anchor points for further consideration. Uh, This is a process that takes time. We had a guest with us last week, Cody Whittington, uh, who is finding a lot of fruit in engaging with people who have questions about their sexuality who feel far from Jesus. And he's finding a way to bridge the gap. And in conversations last week, we had our our leaders get together, some lead pastors get together and talk about it for four hours. Then we got up here on Sunday and talked about it for 45 minutes. And and we left feeling like, ah, that wasn't enough. And I said, well, Cody, how long have you been working on this? He's like, well, seven years. (laughs) And well, I said, you had four hours and 45 minutes. This is a process that we have to allow ourselves to walk into in terms of understanding human sexuality and to give ourselves time and give ourselves grace and and let the Lord work in places. Uh, I I know also that any time you have a conversation like this, it, it, it raises things up in people, places of woundedness, places of fear or brokenness or hurt um, or rejection. And all throughout the preparation for this series, I'm praying, God, would you give grace to each of us? so that God can bring healing to places that are broken, that we'd have the boldness to discuss it so it doesn't have to own us anymore. Amen? Amen. Another disclaimer. Uh, This is important to share, I think, especially within the cultural context and and questions that even the Christian culture has about sexuality these days, is that I'm not changing what I believe concerning a biblical sexual ethic. That's not taking place. I'm simply choosing to invite us to re-examine our behaviors connected to the beliefs that we have. How are we behaving? How are we treating people? And I would suggest that we can do better when it comes to loving our neighbors who are looking for ways to be closer to Jesus, while at the same time asking questions about their identity. We can do better in this place because there are a ton of people asking questions about their sexual identity. And we're the people that God has put on this place, on this earth, in this city, in this neighborhood to say, I'm glad you asked that. Can we talk about it further? Because unfortunately, we've done a really good job of stonewalling people over the last four or five decades, saying we can't talk about that here. And a lot of times it has to do with the shame that exists inside of us. So if we can work out the shame inside of us, then we open ourselves up to having conversations with people that are grounded in the truth of Scripture that will lead people towards the holiness that God has called us to and also His grace. I would suggest that we owe it to people to have these questions, uh, to have solid beliefs and Christ-like actions for others who want to know what it means to be created in the image of of God. And so the hope, because there is hope in all of this, the hope, I believe, is that God could be inviting his church to look deeper into his word to discover a deeper truth 
about who he is and who we are. We've lived in a time where we haven't had to have a strong understanding of sexual biblical ethic because for the most part, culture has, has run parallel with us on this. And so it, it afforded us a space to not really know why we believe what we believe about marriage or why we believe what we believe about identity or orientation. But the season is now, and I would suggest that what it's going to do is call the church back to his word to understand more about the way that he's created us and the relationships he's designed us to live in so that we can be closer with him. It could be a season of exile. And God has always used seasons of exile to grow his church. We've just been in a long season in this nation where we haven't really been in exile. But now we are. And I'm choosing to get excited about it as opposed to fearful of it. Because it allows me to lean into things that scare me as opposed to away from them. So there is hope There is hope. When it comes to sexuality, we want to jump into the matter at hand sometimes instead of jumping into the matter of the heart, right? So this is a series not just about sex, not just about gender, not just about marriage. It's a a series about identity as those who were created in the image of God. We have to remember that. This is a series about image bearing. When we know that we bear the image of God, it helps us know who it is that we belong to. Once we know we belong to him, it makes it easier to find our way. He has given us his image, and as Cody shared with us last week, there's a cool thing that happens with this triune God that we have, right? Three persons of the Godhead, Father, Son, and Spirit. And as Cody laid out last week, the themes that, the things that come up In relation to the triune God, we see unity. That the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit are united in belief and in action and in love for people. That there's diversity. The Father is not the Son, who is not the Holy Spirit, who is not the Father. There is unity and yet there is diversity. Because you can't really have unity without diversity. Because it's just sameness. But to have unity in the midst of diversity... We see equality in the Godhead. There's not one member of the Godhead who is higher than the other, but that in different seasons, in different circumstances, not just one section of time, but in all sections of time at the perfect time, we get access to the Godhead in a way that's equal. And you can't have equality, you can't have equity without humility. So these ideas of unity, diversity, equality, and humility... And we definitely can't have diversity and equality, which are huge buzzwords in our culture, without unity and humility. It's interesting that unity and humility couch these concepts of diversity and equality. That's the way that God has called his church to come to the world. In unity with humility. And we can't have any of this without God. We've talked last week a little bit about marriage and singleness as equal forms of vocation and calling. That ultimately this can't be a conversation just about, well, marriage is God's best way to express his love to people. No, there's there's equal ways that he does it through married vocations. He does it through single vocations. But ultimately, it's not about being married or being single. It's about being a child of God who has brothers and sisters and is a part of the family. Amen? These are important things, important things for us to remember and think about and sit on. So mirror, mirror on the wall, discussion goals for today. We're going to just take a few minutes and ponder the universal complexities of sin. Like no big deal. We're just going to take a few minutes and step way back and just look at the, how sin affects us from the get go. We're going to take a look in the mirror in regards to the complexities of sin We're going to choose again to see people as image bearers first before we see people as sinners. And if we see anyone as a sinner, we better see it in ourselves first. And if we haven't seen it in ourselves first, we better not approach anyone with anything except a reminder that every person bears the image of God. And then we're just going to resist the urge to attack. There is a raging Pharisee inside of me that wants to fix every problem out there fast. So when I write these messages, I'm writing to myself, if it helps you, that's great. But this is just a reminder for myself weekly. Don't attack. Don't attack. Don't attack. So we're going to look at three main points this morning. Take a look at that slide, Zach. 
Our points today, we're, we're going to work on understanding our sin. And that means knowing when to say enough. This main point I'm going to share largely out of the teachings from a gentleman named Marty Solomon who lives over in Pullman, uh, who has a discipleship ministry called Bema Discipleship and some excellent podcasts. Uh, so I give him a lot of credit with, with the ideas that we're going to share as we set up this understanding of our own sin. Uh, secondly, we're going to talk about owning our sin. When we own our sin, it means that we create more space for other people close to us when we own our own brokenness. And, and thirdly, then we're going to talk about calling out our sin, which means calling out all kinds of sin, not just the ones we want to pick on. Understanding our sin know, ne- means knowing when to say enough. It's interesting to know that sin distorts God's intended blessings. Think about this. The intended blessings God has for us, sin distorts. Uh, By using those blessings to an extreme. Using those things in excess. Most things that God gave us, most of the things that we get into trouble with, are things that are actually good things. Think about the things that get you into trouble with your sin. At the root of it, is it good? In excess, does it become unmanageable? Most of the things God gave us were good. Even our ability, when we think about, wow, I really struggle with gossip. Wouldn't that just be in some ways the misappropriation of discernment? That something might be going on in somebody's life. But we want to just chat about it as opposed to taking it to the Lord. Uh, or, or maybe we like desserts. <laughs> Maybe we like desserts too much. Right? Maybe we like to rest, but God talks about the sluggard. Right? Maybe we like to boast in the Lord, but we end up boasting about ourselves. Everything good, everything good comes from God. And everything that is sin is excess. Just too much. Too much. Knowing when to say enough. Something Cody shared with me when we were talking a few weeks ago was that if we have a theology of sin, which most conservative evangelicals, we have a very good theology of sin. We know that there's sin in the world. We want to attack it sometimes. And that's why the world's upset with us, because we like to attack it a lot (laughs) and in the wrong ways. But he says, if we have a theology of sin, which we must, we must also have a theology of deep temptation and enticement. If sin is going to get us, and it can, we got to know that there is temptation and enticement associated with it, and we have to be willing to walk with one another in those places to bring the brokenness to light. Not in a place of condemnation, but as a place of, hey, I see something on you. Like an ugly spider on your shoulder. I just want to get it off, right? Let me get that off you. We have to know that sin is going to make people want things they shouldn't want. And our job is to come alongside as an aid, not as a, like a sledgehammer when someone's dealing with temptation, right? We have to remember today that this conversation about sexuality can't begin with sexual sin. It can't even begin with shame. It must begin with what it means to be created in the image of God. In knowing when that image has been distorted. It gets distorted all the time for me. I like the extra music, but when am I out of alignment? When do I know that I am bearing something other than God's image? I always bear his image, but when is it distorted because of my behavior? When can people not see Jesus because of the way that I'm behaving or the way that I'm thinking? I know that this image is distorted when I haven't been saying enough, enough in my own life. I was thinking about this yesterday, things that I weren't, wasn't saying enough to, like enough to my kitchen and my refrigerator because I was just nervous yesterday or anxious. I was bored and I was eating and I realized I was eating too much enough, right? Or, or when I get too deeply into work and I can't turn it off, enough. Food is good. Vocation is good. But in excess, it becomes a sin. Our image gets distorted when we don't say enough, enough, enough. That's enough of a good thing. I want to say that more. Bama Discipleship, Marty Solomon asks this question, what does it mean to be created in the image of God? I I will send you a link this week to a podcast of an hour-long teaching just about this topic. But he talks about the name of God. 
If we're going to talk about the image of God, we have to know the name of God. And one of the names of God is El Shaddai, which means God Almighty. I'm just going to believe that it also says that in the Hebrew, because I don't speak Hebrew. But what I realize Marty, Hall, Marty Solomon does, and he goes, there's no actual, there's no English word, there's no concept for us to really understand what the Hebrew is talking about in regards to God Almighty. It's just so big. But he tells me that if you just take the consonants in the Hebrew and put them together, it creates a phrase that says, the God who knows when to say enough. And in creation, we see a God that knew when to say enough. He didn't not work on the Sabbath because he was tired. He didn't work on the seventh day because he was exhausted. He, worked on, he, he rested on the seventh day because co- creation was complete. It was enough. It was enough. And now we can rest. There's this quote. Let me put that up. This is from Marty Solomon. God places Adam and Eve at the center of the garden and says, help me to take this creation somewhere. I have a good creation loaded with potential. I'm going to put this tree in the garden so that you know that you're not an animal. Really interesting. There's this concept, this question that people ask. Well, if they weren't supposed to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, what was it doing in the garden? What kind of sadistic God tempts people by putting things in their presence that they're not supposed to have when they can have everything else? And then the enemy, the serpent, came along and said, did God really say that? Did he say that? That you shouldn't eat from this tree. And then there's some half-truths and some some lies, and it gets sketchy because the serpent is crafty, and he mixes things up. But we see this, this tree, this knowledge of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the garden that's loaded with potential, but Marty's breaking this down and he quotes God or paraphrases God or takes this idea and, and God says, I'm going to put this tree in the garden so that you know that you're not an animal. You have been created a human and I have created you in my image. I need you to know how to say enough. Your desires are good, but they must have limits. The temptation of the snake is to say to Eve, you're just a beast. Next slide. What does a beast do when it has desires? It fulfills its desires. To be made in the image of God is to know what it means to harness our creative potential, our creative powers and desires. God is inviting Adam and Eve to do the same thing he invited us to do in the story of creation. Just trust the story. I made this creation good. You need to know when enough is enough. Don't believe that God is holding out on you. The beast says, take more than you were offered. The tree is in the garden to remind that the humans, what makes them humans and not beasts, is that we have this ability to say, enough! That's what makes us different. Beasts consume until the end. The Hulk, we're just watching, which one last night? Ragnarok, I think we were watching last night. And the Hulk, Thor has a really hard time getting the Hulk to say enough with his anger, even to the point of destruction. Enough! Our whole culture is saturated and we know we're going down this slippery slope and we don't know how to say enough. It's why recovery centers exist. It's why prisons exist. It's why it all exists because we don't know how to say enough. We all, not they don't know how to say enough. We don't know how to say enough as people all created in the image of God. Here's some thoughts. Zach, if you could put those up. Our sexuality is most definitely a part of how we are. But it isn't fundamentally who we are. That's important to remember. Sexuality in its intended context is absolutely beautiful. It's not shameful. Sexuality, when engaged with outside of its intended context, however, is sinful. There's a context for the gifts. There's a place and a space to say enough with the good stuff. By definition, then sin opens the door to shame and condemnation and down the hill we go. See, nobody wants to confront sin from a place of shame. Nobody wants to do that. Nor do I suggest that we do it because shame is from hell. And that's why it feels like hell to confront our sin from a place of shame. That's why it feels that way. 
It's much better to confront sin from a place of conviction. Thank you, Holy Spirit, who convicts us, who lovingly comes and says to us, that thing that you're going to do is going to kill you. And I love you too much to watch you die. And he takes from us gently, gracefully, the things that keep us in bondage. He just, he doesn't, he knows we're created in his image. He loves us. He created us. He's invested in us. And he just wants to take that stuff from us. That said, still, we often view our sin through the lens of shame. And when we do, we start pointing fingers. Because that's a horrible thing to feel ourselves. It's much better to get that back on the other person. It's like a game of dodgeball. You're just trying to get all back on the other side of the room as frantically as you can. We have to have a theology for sin. Knowing when enough is enough. Before we have any of these conversations, we have to start there. Knowing when enough is enough. That's what it means to understand our sin a little bit. Secondly, part two, owning our sin means that we create more space for people. We create more space for people. Matthew 7, 1 through 5 is our text. We find this towards the conclusion of what was called the Sermon on the Mount. It happened on a hillside near Capernaum. We got a map of that. There we go. So Jesus, uh, he was, grew up in Nazareth. That was his hometown. I'm told it's 27 miles and 10 hours by foot to go from Nazareth to Capernaum, which is up there at the top of the Sea of Galilee where Jesus spent a whole lot of time doing ministry. But he go back and forth. And occasionally we go down to Jerusalem. Jesus was walking around a lot. Walking with people, talking with people. But he got to this hillside near Capernaum, and he began to teach. And this, this teaching that we have in three chapters, five through seven of the book of Matthew, played out over a number of days. So people kept coming back day after day for this teaching. And this teaching challenged the religious leaders of the day who tripped over their shallow observation of God's law. They were always tripping over this. They fell short of the heartfelt obedience that was rooted in love. We have a picture. This is an actual picture of one of the Pharisees that was out there at the Sermon on the Mount. Tripping over these, these ill-fated attempts to just do right and earn our love through doing right. And they missed the whole thing. And Jesus was like, you're missing it, guys. This was never about shallow observance of the law. This was about obedience that was rooted in love. This discourse of Jesus is covering a wide variety of hot-button issues. If you look through Matthew 5 through 7, there's a lot of hot-button issues in there that we could fight about. People weren't doing a good job of obeying those laws, but Jesus doubled down on the Old Testament laws by challenging people to move beyond what was required to a, a place that was motivated by love. Just don't just do what's required. Do it because you love people and you'll stop tripping up like this all the time. My friend Mike Johnson once said to me, he goes, I don't not cheat on my wife because I want to be found in accordance with the law. That's That's not why I obey that law. I don't cheat on my wife because it would be an incredibly, horribly unloving thing to do. Same outcome. Same outcome. You didn't cheat on your wife. But did you do it so that you'd get the credit for not doing it? Or did you not do it because you love her? Ha! Motivation is everything. Attitude is everything for those who desire to follow after Jesus. He spoke to the community as a whole now, right? He's speaking to this whole crowd of people at the Sermon of the Mount at Capernaum on the hillside. But no single individual was off the hook either when it came to personal accountability. And we know that because of what he says concerning judgment. No single individual was off the hook. Matthew 7, 1 through 5. Do not judge or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be used to you, at you. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take that speck out of your eye, when all the time there's a plank in your own eye? Can you imagine this playing out? Like if Mr. Bean did a sketch on this or something, or SNL did a sketch. I mean, this would look hysterical. You hypocrite! 
first, Jesus called the people hypocrites. You hypocrite, first take the plank out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. So this word for judging and judgment used here in the Greek speaks against the hypocritical and negative kind of judgment. That's the kind of judgment it speaks against. It's the one that comes from the person who is so wrought with their own shame that they can't do anything but throw all the dodgeballs back to the other side of the room and knock somebody's head off in the process. That's the kind of judgment that this speaks about in the Greek. Now, this is not a call to abandon critical thought (laughs) and appropriate kinds of correction as necessary. It simply means we're not going to run a person out of the room by condemning their identity or, or, or convincing them that they don't bear the image of God, which they do. That's the kind of judgment. Because every person bears the image of God. So there's a place for critical correction. We'll talk about when that is in just a minute. But there's never a place to run someone out of the room, no matter who they are, no matter what they look like, no matter what they're doing. They bear the image of God. Every single one. God's helping me expand my idea of every single one more and more and more. Because there's a raging Pharisee in me that's one to fix people's behaviors. So again, well, where do we land on this? That's why we need the power of the Holy Spirit. There's a sliding scale that ranges between loving accountability and harsh condemnation. It just does. There's a sliding scale. Where do we land? Well, we're going to need the presence and the power of the wisdom and the discernment of the Holy Spirit to know what every single situation needs. I was just asking my mentor, Vaughn, right before service. (laughs) We're playing Yahtzee, and students want to listen to music with explicit lyrics in it. And godless chatter, what what do I do right there? Because it's their turf. I want to come in and just smack people around. But I don't want people to be overly influenced by things that are going to cut down their soul and understanding of what it means to be pure in his sight. What do I do? Something helps me in this understanding, and now this, this, if just left by itself, could get awfully slippery and a little bit um, overly permissive. But to sometimes say, you know what, they would be doing it anyways. And I'm with them. I'm not doing it, but I'm with them. And in that moment, I really wanted to lay the smack down on what I heard coming out of some phones. And Vaughn was on this side of the room, the window, the thing was closed, and so I couldn't get to him, and I thought, not today. I'm going to have conversations to figure out a better approach than just getting all pharisaical on these kids right now. Because if I do that right now, they're not going to share with me in 15 minutes what's going on in their lives. Whew! This is hard, Vaughn! Sign up for City Life. Come on out. Hmm. More often today we hear the phrase, don't judge me. Don't judge me. Don't judge me. Don't judge me. You can't judge me. A lot of people use that as a loophole. For avoiding any kind of personal responsibility. Don't judge me, Hal. (laughs) This can awaken the slumbering Pharisee when somebody says that. So I'm learning to pause and take a breath and ask a few critical questions. So the question is, how do we decide to what extent we will engage in the judgment of others? Here's a few questions that we can ask ourselves. Has the person invited me to hold them accountable? There you go. That's real easy. Boy, if they have said, come on in and tell me everything that's going wrong with me, then we, we still got to use grace. We still got to love. But I have friends that are like this. We just have given each other permission to call each other out. Then you have permission. Judge away, right? Because judgment is motivated by love if someone's invited you into that space. Another question, to what extent am I applying what I am prescribing to this person to myself as well? Even if they've asked me to hold them accountable in that area. Thirdly, (laughs) this, this is where playing Yahtzee with high school students on Thursday nights with the explicit music. Do I trust that God is sovereign? Do I trust him in his plan for transformation in the lives of those who he's put me in front of. Those are good questions for ourselves. I'm working on doing a better job with these questions. Just for fun, because we celebrated Valentine's Day, I'm going to read one of my favorite passages on love from the Bible. No, it's not 1 Corinthians 13, so keep your ears open. 
Sometimes we hear things that are familiar that are wonderful and we just blot them out because we've heard it too much. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love is all those things. But love is something else too. Romans 12, if you want to go there. Verses 9 through whenever I feel like finishing here. Because that describes love, 1 Corinthians 13. This does love, Romans 12. Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in love. Honor one another above yourselves. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope. Be patient in affliction. Be faithful in prayer. Share with the Lord's people who are in need. Mm. Practice hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Right now in your life, who's persecuting you? Who's rejoicing in your life? Who in this season is mourning deeply in your life? Give that a minute and three names should come to mind. Who's persecuting you? Who's experiencing joy? Who's experiencing soul-crushing grief? Love is an action. Act in love towards each of those people. Verse 16. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. That's the only reason I got any friends, uh, is because people have done that with me my whole life. First and foremost, my wife, Katrina. Thank you, babe, for loving me in low places. Do not be conceited. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everybody. Donkeys and elephants. I'm waiting for a new animal. (laughs) I don't know what I am. I'm somewhere in the middle on all that mess. But like, live at peace with everybody. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Oh, happy Valentine's Day weekend. Mm. Read this every time before you're about to pass judgment. Just like, because we, we get there, right? Before we're going to open our mouth and cast judgment on somebody, ask yourself these three questions and read Romans 12, verses 9 through 21. Just do it. It'll solve all that mess. You'll never be called a hypocrite again in your entire life. Because hypocrite isn't about not sinning. It's about owning up to our sin. We're going to sin. It doesn't mean being perfect. It just means... Being honest about where we're at. Don't ask somebody to do something you ain't going to do yourself. Something you haven't already done. There's this other picture. You can take a picture of that too. This is the raging Pharisee. This is what he looks like, guys. And he's like multiple people inside of me, this raging Pharisee. I just thought I'd show you what goes on in my soul sometimes when people are behaving poorly. Not up to my standards. This attack mode happens inside of me. I would suggest... That we often attack others about their sin most readily when we have shame concerning the sin that we have not submitted to Jesus. That's when this comes out. When I see this guy, it's a good time to stop and ask, what's going on in me? That I want to attack that guy because I got shame. That's it. Three, calling out sin means calling out all kinds of sin. As we engage this discussion further... There's going to be time to talk about hot-button issues, a whole weekend devoted to talking about heterosexuality and homosexuality. As we engage discussions about sexuality, it must always be within the larger discussion of the universal nature of sexual sin. Not one is worse than the other or better than the other, but the Lord says that he has designed us for a purpose, and there's all kinds of ways that we can step out of that. But somehow we've decided that the homosexuality, as Cody spoke last weekend, was the worst kind of sin for him growing up in his house. A God and country, not a Christ and kingdom kind of house. Where it was just, let's take that one and attack it. 
Let's attack that thing. Let's maul it to death in the people who have questions about it. Let's maul them too. We've done it. We've done it. It's going to take a long time to crawl up out of this hole. A long time. Decades. Decades. I believe that this very well could be a defining issue for how the church responds over the next three decades or more. We've got to walk back what we can walk back in terms of the way that we've treated people concerning our beliefs. I will still humbly hold to a biblical sexual ethic knowing that that is a place that is so deeply painful for people that I tread lightly. Understanding what God has forgiven me first and foremost. I tread lightly. I hold to the theology and I love people regardless of where they're coming from. That's a tough place to stand. We've been talking about this. It would be easier to go way left or way right. But boy, to be in the middle is to be like Jesus. No one was indifferent to Jesus. They loved him or they hated him. But they had some sort of, some sort of extremity about who he was. That's important for us to remember. John 8 verses, it's actually John 7 verse 53 through John 8, verse 11. Just a side note, um, as we engage this story, um, although it's most likely an actual account, you'll see this in your Bibles if you have a study Bible, that this was an actual account in the life of Jesus, but most scholars at this point uh, agree that it wasn't originally part of John's gospel, uh, and it wasn't in most of the original Greek texts. So we hold this scripture lightly, knowing that it was an event from his life, but probably didn't land exactly here because it's not in the Greek manuscript. Since we study scripture, it's important to be honest with scripture. So this was most likely a a conversation that Jesus had with the woman who was caught in adultery. Uh, But it was often uh, misplaced in this part of the text. We don't know where it goes, so we just put it there. All right? little Bible study out of the book of John. John 8. Sorry, John 7, verse 53 through 8.11. This is just a picture, so I'm going to read this, and you can just see the image. Then they all went home, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. At dawn he appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. Now, what do you say? Trying to trap him. They were using this question as a trap in order to have a, a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. <laughs> That's a, God's so smart. <laughs> I don't think that. I wouldn't think I'd have done that. So then the room got awkward, or the courtyard got awkward, or the, the neighborhood got awkward, because, like, here's this woman, and here's these, here's these attack mode Pharisees, and then here's Jesus standing there. And he just gets down, and he just writes in the dirt. You just hear birds tweeting and crickets, and that's it. I can't imagine what it must have been like. I don't know what it must have been like. Verse 7. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, Let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. <laughs> Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground some more. So now it's getting double awkward. At this, at this those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first. Until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go and leave your life of sin. A couple observations about this. One called blind and conceited judgment. What was brought to this woman was blind and conceited judgment. The teachers of the law were judging with their own best interests in mind. We talked about appropriate judgment comes with our brother's, our sister's best interest in mind. Because we got to be able to watch each other's backs. This came with their own best interest in mind. While blinded, they looked past the image of God that rested on the woman. 
They just missed the image of God that was on her and her lover. Where was he? Nothing about their judgments was focused on reconciliation or love for God. Nothing about their judgment in that moment. So when we're judging something, when we're judging someone, do we base that in our love for God and hope for reconciliation or just get the shame up off our own shoulders? How do we do it? What's our motivation? They were thinking, hey, man, if we can get her story to run at the top of the fold in tomorrow's morning's newspaper, maybe then we could just bury our own lead on like A7. Just bury that thing at the bottom if we can get her story to run up front. Blind and conceited judgment. They missed the image of God. Could never have treated her well. Because they didn't see her as one who could even be reconciled to the one that they thought they were worshiping. Second, a boardwalk full of planks. (laughs) Pharisees showed up without witnesses. This was a big problem. It was going to take two human beings catching that couple in the act. Not walking out behind the playground or anything like that. Catching two people in the act. The likelihood of that happening was so low. Hearsay wasn't enough. They would have had to catch them in the act. That was not likely the case. And secondly, the Pharisees should have also brought the man. So here's the thing. They go rushing off in attack mode with all this judgment while they were sinning. Not that they had sin. They, comp- they were in the act of active sin. They were sinning, pointing fingers. While- It's me sometimes (laughs) in the midst of my sin. And here's the beautiful thing. Jesus offers grace and he upholds the law. They came to trap him. (laughs) He turned the thing on his head again by getting down and riding in the dirt. Let anyone who is among you without sin cast the first stone. So he's permitting them to obey the law. He's not telling them they can't obey the law. He's just saying, uh, you know, make sure you're qualified. And then they walked away. I don't know about this. This may be conjecture. But it's interesting that they walked away oldest to youngest. Because <laughs> the oldest ones knew. They realized what they'd been caught in. And then I imagine there's some like 17-year-old kid just frothed into the mouth. Just like ready to throw that stone. And like somebody old guy grabs his hand. like, stop, you idiot. He caught us again. And he walks away too. That's just how I see it playing out in my mind. <laughs> That's what I see. So why are we so quick to point out sexual sin? Hmm. All sin, all sin in God's eyes is sin. It's all sin. It all comes with consequence. Now, it will be fair to say this, that the consequences of sexual sin are often much greater and much more pervasive. It comes with deeper, uh, more difficult, temporary challenges. Ultimately, in the end, though, like, if we're looking at an eternal perspective, sin is sin. But why are we attacking people as opposed to saying, hey, you know what? If, if this continues on, it's going gonna, it's gonna to make it really hard to just have your job. Do you know how much child care is? Do you know what kind of diseases are out? Like, God has a plan for our safety and our flourishing. And if we're going to come to somebody about it, we better come with grace and say, I want to save you from some stuff, not, not condemn you. I want to save kids from the things that they hear because it affects our souls. It affects the way that we look at people. I want to rip those. I just want to, I just want to keep these kids safe. But it can't come out like a Pharisee. It's got to come out with love and compassion. Remembering that I was doing the same stupid, listening to the same music when I was their age. I didn't know. Someone had come after me and I didn't know. I'd never come back. The Lord told me when I was 17, when I was at camp in Moscow, Idaho, to go home and throw out all of my cassettes and CDs. Thank you. Thank you, Richard. Thanks for being my brother, Richard. Yeah. Look at me. Thank you. All right. God told me. Nobody told me. No one ever told me to stop listening to the music I listened to. God told me. Surrounded me with loving people who helped me see a different way. I'm just preaching myself. I'm just trying to figure out how I'm going to do next Thursday. That's what I'm doing right now. So just thanks for listening. <clears throat> just working it out. 
It's all the same. We also experience the greatest amounts of shame in these places of sexual sin for whatever reason. We have hidden sexual sin sometimes in our lives. Don't worry, I'm not going to ask anybody to confess any of that mess right here. Don't like, stay in the room, please. Just safe. But beyond our own submitted sins, beyond our own unsubmitted sins, I would also like to suggest that we found ways to point at homosexual sin as somehow different than our own sexual sin. That's important. It needs to be said. That's the stone in my hand. Still sin. It's just not worse sin. The sin is the way we've treated people. That's another sin. I see this not as a reason to like beat ourselves up, but there's just an unconscious bias going on, right? It's a way to sidestep the complexities of my own mess. We'll talk more about this in greater detail in two weeks. A couple questions. What might we do with our own sexual sin? Shared a lot about this with the fellas. Uh, Wouldn't even be appropriate right now to share about that, but God will set us free. He will set us free. So we don't even have to worry about it. And we've got to worry about it, but we don't got to be consumed by it. He will set us free in these areas. We will bring to Jesus under the loving conviction of the Holy Spirit all of this sin with the intent of finding freedom from bondage. That's all. God just wants you to set it down. No one's going to point a finger at you from this, this stage. But just celebrate the freedom. We're not going to talk, we'll talk about how to get over it, but then we're not going to talk about it anymore. Just, we're free. Where people are setting people free. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, one of my favorite theologians, was martyred for his faith in 1945 in Germany in a concentration camp five days before the camp was liberated. Wrote a book called The Cost of Discipleship. Anyone who dies for their faith, I'll read their book if it's called The Cost of Discipleship. Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote so much. And then he wrote this tiny, itty bitty little thing called Life Together. It's almost just a pamphlet. It's a book that changed my life in regards to all of this in college. This is what Dietrich says in chapter 5 called Confession and Accountability. Bro, don't read this unless you're ready for change. I didn't even know what was happening. They didn't warn me before I read it, but then I just opened up chapter 5, and here we go. Dietrich says, he who is alone with his sin is utterly alone. Alone. Like, by yourself. Outside of relationship. It may be that Christians, notwithstanding corporate worship common prayer, and all their fellowship and service. We could have all of that, but if we're alone with our sin, it doesn't matter how many people are in the room. We're by ourselves. That's what he says. The final breakthrough, this is what really rocked me, the final breakthrough to fellowship does not occur because though they have fellowship as one with one another as believers and devout people, they do not have fellowship as the undevout as sinners. They don't have fellowship as people who sin together. So everybody must conceal their sin from themselves and from the fellowship. We dare not be sinners. (laughs) We dare not be sinners. Many Christians are unthinkably horrified when a real sinner (laughs) is suddenly discovered amongst the righteous. (laughs) So we remain alone with our sin living in lies and hypocrisy. The fact is, we are sinners. Hallelujah. The pressure's off. I'm a sinner, saved by grace. It's the truest message of the gospel. I am a hot mess apart from Jesus. That's it. That's all I got. That's all I got. The confession of this identity as a sinner will open the pathway for me to live out my full identity as one who has created the image of God and has claimed the adopted status as child of God upon my confession of my sin. It's good news. So the last question for us, this, this is hopefully going to be a point of growth for those here, those who are listening on the podcast. Hi all to you guys. Who knows your brokenness has permission to call you out on it? Everybody should have one. I would suggest that we have that relationship with our spouses if we're married. I would suggest that we have those conversations with our friends if we're married. I suggest we have that conversation with our brothers and sisters if we're not married. But we all need to be having this conversation. It's going to get more and more old school 
as generations go by. But I will say, have this conversation. If you're a brother, have it with a brother. If you're a sister, have it with a sister. Because we're different. We're equal, but we're different. God made us that way. Equal, different. Diversity, unity, humility. Right? Have these conversations. Who, who, and if you don't have someone right now that can actively call you out while you're eating a sandwich... Hey, how's that thing you were talking about? Make sure that people aren't listening. But like, that's the way me and my friends drop it on each other sometimes. It's like, hey, how's that thing? Like, <laughs> but it's not bad judgment because I gave him permission to do it. Right? Who's that person? All right, that's enough. Again, remember these conversations. These are anchor points for much deeper conversations. At the end of this series, if you want these notes, just email me. I'll send them to you. Um, this is the anchor points for much deeper considerations that we all get to be a part of. Uh, next week, we're going to talk about God's intent for marriage, like what that's about, how he designed it. Lord Jesus, thank you. God, thank you for this fellowship. Lord, thank you for those that are in this room, those that are not in this room. But Lord, whether we're in this room or not in this room, whether we're with people or we are physically by ourselves in this moment, Lord, uh, because someone's not around or we're sick at home or, or we're on a road trip, or if we're, if we're physically by ourselves, Lord, we pray that no one would be alone, that no one would be out of reach of someone who could support them in the things that they're going through in life. God, thank you that you convict us lovingly of our sin and give us hope to say, I just, I'm just going to give that all back to you and go again, Lord, to pursue you. Lord, thank you. God, thank you for this church. Thank you for this family. Thank you for the kids. Thank you for this neighborhood, for our City Life students, Casino Road Kids Ministry students, the place you've called us to be present and available. Would you fill us with your spirit again today as we go? In Jesus' name we pray. Everyone said amen. Hey, sorry for running along. Uh, I might do that two more weeks, and then we'll have like a 10-minute sermon the week after. That's good because I ain't preaching that weekend, so it would be great. Hey, God bless you, church. Have a great week. You've been listening to a podcast from South Everett Foursquare Church. For more information about us, please visit us online at www.southeverett.org.